0: Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw.
1: Now, the second thing that I want to mention institutions develop in particular is marriage. And I said earlier that uh, marriage is secondary to the family. Uh, Because the family, the parent child relationship, its basis is not in the will of God. Now, hear me carefully. The basis of the family, metaphysically, is not in the will of God, it's in the nature of God. Do you get the difference in what I'm saying? (laughs) It's not that the family originated by a decision of God, it is something that is in his nature. You know, uh, I love the fact that the son is the eternally begotten son. Do you know how that would be better translated? He is the eternally being begotten Son. Because, you see, the begottenness is in eternity, not in time. And is no before and after in eternity. Do you know that the second person of the Trinity is as dependent upon the first person of the Trinity today as the fetus in the womb of a pregnant woman is on the mother? He draws his life eternally from the Father. Now you see, we think of birth as a punctiliar thing because we're in that inexorable before and after time scheme. But the eternal begottenness of the second person of the Trinity is an eternal relationship. I think that's the reason that a good atheist gets misty-eyed when he sees the birth of his child. Sees that crinkly little black head, black hair appear, and as he does, he gets misty-eyed. Why? Because he's seeing something in a moment of time that is in principle taking place eternally in the nature of the deity a temporal analogy of an eternal reality don't you wish we had eyes to see what's taking place around us and its meaning and its significance we're made in his image (laughs) the relationships are in the image now I remember what a shock it was to me when I began thinking about marriage in this way. Do you know that uh, Adam was not the first husband? In fact, he only analogically is a husband. The first husband is the second part of the Blessed Trinity. And Adam is really part of the spouse. Because, you see, I think that marriage didn't originate in the nature of the deity, but it originated in the will of the deity. God said, how will I relate these people I'm making down there to each other? I'll relate them the way I'm going to make relate these people I'm making to my son. Now, think with me a minute you know the word uh, type and antitype?
0: Uh, the entry into Canaan would be like reason is, In one stream of the church you have baptism and, and confirmation separated from baptism. So the baptism is comparable to the Exodus. And confirmation is comparable to uh, the entry into the land of Canaan. And it's, those are comparable to the crucifixion of strife, the passion, the resurrection. New birth and Pentecost. Is, you, know, you know what happens when a kid is confirmed? Jesus is supposed to lay his hands on him and say, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And so you've got, you've got Christ and Antichrist. Another one is the temple. In the book of Hebrews, what does it say about the temple? It says that Christ has entered now into the true temple. So you've got the type and the antitope. Let me use a little different language. Now you can argue. You can
1: argue, and if you don't understand what I'm saying, then you will, uh, uh, you may mis- misread what I'm saying. They're symbols and they're realities. Let me take out of the life of Christ. What did Jesus
0: say to the Jews the day after he fed the 5,000 when they went around the lake and shaved them down into the furnace?
1: I am of what? What did he say about the relationship with what had happened the day before? He said, You ate the bread and the fish, but you never saw the sign." Now, what does that say about the eating of bread and fish? Let me talk about communion. It's interesting. You know, a pagan would not have had the vaguest notion what I meant by communion when I was uh, younger because you know what I meant by communion? I didn't know anything about That was too big a word for me. But when I was that high, I knew that communion meant a little piece of bread, And a little bit of grape juice. That was a technical definition of communion. It was later that I found that communion was a relationship between people. (laughs) What I thought it was was the wafer and the cup. Now, what's the wafer and the cup? That's the reason we make them so small. Because if you ate a full meal, what would you tend to do? It would be an end in itself. You want a symbol to be suggested. Now I'm convinced that marriage and the relationship of Christ to his body, the church, fit in this tight anti-type bit and the symbol reality bit. Which is more important, the wafer and the cup are the life that we receive from Christ? You don't even have to answer that one, do you? You feel like, feel sort of stupid, even stupid to answer that kind of question. One is a symbol, the other is a reality. Now, does the wafer in the cup have reality? They're physical reality. They're earthly reality. And the probabilities are that in the early church, they did eat a full meal. But they realized as time passed that, uh, They could more effectively communicate by making it more obviously a symbol instead of a reality. Now, you know, I read Ephesians 5 for years saying Paul evidently knew one guy who really loved his wife. In fact, he knew one guy who loved his wife so much that he said, ah, there's a good illustration of the way Christ loves the church. You know, I think that's upside down. Now, maybe this is old, old past to you. But that has revolutionized my relationship to Elton. You see, history begins with a wedding. God gives that Eve to Adam. Isn't it interesting? History ends with a wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb. What a fascinating philosophy of history. Now you say, man, you're going too far now. Hold on. The Jews came to to John the Baptist in the third chapter of John and said, you used to have big crowds. The mobs came to hear you preach and you've lost. They've all gone off to follow this Jesus that you introduced. How do you feel about Him stealing your crowd? Now He said two things. One of them, for 40 years I understood with no problem. He must increase and I must decrease. I thought that was noble. But why did He say He must increase and I have to decrease? He said, friend, is it appropriate at a wedding announcement party for the best man to upstage, the groom, this is a wedding announcement party, and I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom, which means if I can read English and understand it, John the Baptist viewed Jesus' ministry as the incarnate Son of God in nuptial terms.
0: Where did he get that? You read the second
1: chapter of Mark, you'll find it also in Matthew and also in Luke, given in all the synoptics, and I think there's a reason, in the mind is the spirit for it being there. The Jews came to Jesus in Mark 2 and said, there was a guy who came through here not long ago had good religion. His disciples fasted and prayed. Your disciples don't fast. One up for us. We do. Jesus said, is it appropriate at a wedding announcement party for the friends of the bridegroom to go around fasting? Nope. At the announcement of a wedding, the friends of the bridegroom see. The day will come when they'll fast when the bridegroom is taken from them. Now, if I can read English, that means that Jesus saw his ministry in
0: nuptial terms.
1: Let me ask you, is that why the ministry of Jesus began with a wedding? That's not where I would have begun it. It was in an out-of-the-way place with some unknown people to save somebody from social embarrassment. Hard to make a case for the theology of that, isn't it? I don't wanted to do some Cecil B. DeMille extravaganza like feeding five thousand or the resurrection of Lazarus right off the bat and get the get the campaign on the road. In an out of the way place with some unknown people, he solved a social problem to keep somebody from being embarrassed. But it was at a wedding, and he blessed it. And you refer to it every time you marry a couple with a Methodist ceremony. You see, I think Jesus is saying what we're about is a wedding. There was a time when, hold one second, there was a time when the church felt this a little more intensely. You know, I'm not sure, but it may be that there have been more commentaries written on the Song of Songs than any other book in the Bible. And I think I could easily make a case that the number of pages written on it in relation to the size of it will beat anything else in all of Scripture, hands down. Why? Do you know the story of the? Of course you know the story of the Martyrdom of Hugh Latimer, Bishop Latimer, and Bishop Ridley. In the square at Oxford, they burned them at the stake. And you will remember... Latimer made that great statement, Brother Ridley, we'll light a fire here that will ignite all England. Now, that was when they were burning. You know what happened the night before? Ridley's jailer's wife. Ridley had been the Bishop of London. Ridley's jailer's wife had a dinner for Ridley the night before he was to be executed, burned. He invited some of his closest friends. And in the course of the meal, he was very weepy. She had come to love him. And he was in buoyant spirit. And he looked at him and said, Bishop, it isn't right in the light of the morning for you to be so
0: lighthearted. And wept. Oh, he said, daughter, you misunderstand. Tomorrow is my wedding day.
1: Tonight, we celebrate. He said,
0: yes, but think how it will begin. Yes, perhaps it will begin a bit bitter, but think of supper. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Now my
1: question is,
0: what does that do to marriage down here? If
1: Adam and Eve had a physical marriage at the beginning of history, marriage like yours and mine, you'll let me use that language, and... Uh, the end of human history is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Which is the symbol and which is the reality? Then what's the purpose of the symbol? If God gave me a father and a mother, so I'd know the nature of God and how to relate to him, the father. God gave me Elsie so I know how to relate to Jesus. He's the one to teach me self-sacrificing love. And do you know what i found? It is the best place in my life, it has been the best place in my life, for me to understand that my fulfillment is not in satisfying me. I look back now and smile the first time I said to her, I love you. you know what I really was saying? I said, you know, when you're near, I
0: feel very good. And the closer I get you, the better I feel. And I like to feel good. And I'd like you very near. When you
1: pay attention to me, i feel good and when you choose to pay attention to me instead of paying attention to that other guy
0: i feel very very good
1: would you let me be first in your life so i can feel good is that love you'll notice all the pronouns our first personal You know, I had to live with her for a while to find that my unhappiest moments were when she was unhappy. And if I couldn't keep her content, I was miserable. And do you know the best moments we ever had? She got sick on me. And couldn't take care of herself. And I found it was
0: royal privilege to take care of her. You remember what we
1: said Monday? That a person's fulfillment is not in himself. It's in another. I found the reason, main reason, for, wait a minute, this is how selfish I still am. Main reason for me to give gifts to her is much more fun to give gifts to her than it is to get them from her. You see, something happened to me in the transition. And do you know I found there's more joy when I've had some vague trace of a feeling that I've been of service to Christ than when I've received his best cleanest feeling you'll ever get is when you have the feeling that you've been of service to God. that's other orientation that's not individualism that's personal relationship the way it's supposed to be the key to me isn't in me it's outside me in other persons And so God gave me a father and a mother and gave everybody else that ever lived a father and a mother. And God makes everybody that comes along, male or female. Now, a few people get a little confused occasionally. But the difference between a male and a female is in the order of creation. And that's the great tragedy of homosexuality. It's unreality. It's against the nature of God's created order. The proof of it is that the relationship is
0: sterile
1: and cannot be otherwise. Because love is supposed to produce another. It's a violation of the symbols. And I'm convinced that's the reason God has such strong sanctions biblically on these two institutions. Because they're so crucial to what he's about. Interesting, I found myself treating Elsie very differently since I began thinking this way. You know how I'm supposed to treat her? The way Jesus treats me. Thank God he doesn't do a tit-for-tat job with me. But that's the way I'd like to do it with it. And God's had a mess of a time taking me out of that one. But he's given me an instrument
0: to help take me out. Let me make
1: a comment. Isn't it interesting that the symbol that you were in covenant relationship with God in the Old Testament with circumcision? You explain that to a modern university pagan. You see, God put the symbol that you belong to him in the Old Covenant at the point of union of a man with his wife. That's the reason the Jews did not do female circumcision because they were to be one flesh. The way we are to be one in Christ. The so where, as we said the first day, Jesus says, when you get me, you get my father. If you miss me, you miss my father. And if you get me, if the world gets you, they get me and my father. And if the world misses you, they miss me and my father because you and I are one. And that's the body of Christ. I wish I knew how
0: to preach that. It adds, it adds, it adds,
1: it it creates an
0: atmosphere, an
1: attitude toward life. We deal with with holy things, when we deal with material social institutions, with the material world and social institutions, as part of the theology of the Incarnation, it's interesting. Our ultimate end is not the spirit separated from the body, we're headed for the resurrection. And the ultimate end is going to be different from this. But you know what I think we're going to say when we stand before him? The ones that miss it, he's not going to have to say a word. All he's going to have to do is open their eyes. And those who've missed it are going to look up and say, how under the sun
0: did I miss it?
1: Because God has created his world to get us ready, created it symbolically, analogically, to get us ready for the real. By that I mean the eternal world. And he's given us time, and structured time in such a way that we have our eyes to see. How many of you have read Peter Berger's The Rumor of Angels? Peter Berger wrote a book in 19, I'll come back to this, but let me say this. He said, if there is a world out there you can't see such a measure, there ought to be occasional signals that come through. He calls them signals of transcendence. And he has five that he
0: developed in that book.
1: You know what one of them is?
0: It's play. I loved it.
1: He said, the kid's late for supper. And his mother raises her voice and says, why are you late for supper? You've held the whole family up. He says, I was playing." And the mother says, that's no answer. But deep in his heart, he's brighter than she is. Because anybody knows that when you play, time Stop! and old Peter Berger says is that a signal that we are made for something beyond time who doesn't like to play there were half a dozen of us who got together for breakfast about seven, eight years ago to talk about uh, some of the needs for Christian literature. Let me just give one illustration. Some of the best things in print, wait a minute, some of the best things ever written get published, run through a printing or two, and then are lost. I don't know about anybody else, but the best thing I have ever read on the theology of John Wesley, I've read it four times and want to read it a fifth. There are not many books I do that with. But I had a friend of mine say to me one day, I don't know whether you know the name A.W. Tozer or not, I had the privilege once of spending a half a day with him. I was his chauffeur, one of those serendipities that the Lord drops in your lap. We are riding along, and he was the best read man I ever met. Now, not the most widely read man, but from my point of view, the best read man. He looked at me in the afternoon and said, "Kenlaw, don't ever read a good book, and dropped it. I said, wait a minute, run that past me again. He said, don't ever read a good book, you don't have time. You'll never get all the best books read. And he said, if there is, if you didn't get all there was in the last best book you read, why pick up something second rate when you ought to go back and reread one of the best ones? And so I found myself reading much more selectively. It saved me from... Uh, book reading one-upmanship, you know. I don't know about anybody else, but I was one of those kind of guys that wanted to be up with everybody else, and so I'd bump into my friends, and if one of them said, have you read, you know, I felt like a second-class citizen if I hadn't said, if I couldn't say, yes, I've read. I've been delivered from that. Uh, now, I've been much more selective. But the best book I have ever read on the theology of John Wesley is a Scandinavian Methodist. Uh, his name is Harold Lindstrom. It's called Wesley and Sanctification, and it deals with the order of salvation and deals with prevenient grace better than anything else that I've ever done uh, read. Um, we we were talking, so I said that ought to be in print. Published in the early 40s in in Sweden, uh, in German. It was then published by Eppworth in England, it was published by Cookberry in this country or Abingdon in this country, ran through an edition or two and then uh, was dropped. So uh, as we walked out that morning, professor of Christian uh, Christian education at Asbury Seminary, Harold Burgess turned to me and said, uh, You get me a little money and I'll put that in print. I felt that we needed it as Asbury for classroom purposes and available for our students. And uh, most of the treatments of the theology of John Wesley deal with only certain aspects. Not They come at it from an angle rather than approaching the whole order of salvation. And there's nothing wrong with that. You need those specialized studies like cells. Uh, it's uh, one angle. Uh, uh, Bill Cannon deals with the concept of justification by faith as the central interpreting key. This is a broader one. So uh, he said, "You get me a little money, and I will I'll put that in print for you." I say, "You know anything about publishing?" Well, he said, "I know enough to do that." So I talked to businessman. It's the only time I've ever done this. I went to this businessman on our board at the college, and I said, "I want uh, some money." Told him what I wanted it for. He gave me thirty-five hundred dollars. We borrowed fifteen sixteen hundred dollars. And in Kentucky, if you got three people, fifty bucks, and a lawyer, you can form a corporation. I have a son-in-law who's a lawyer. So we formed the Francis Asbury Publishing Society, a publishing company. And, uh, we, uh, got that, uh, put into print. Got another text called Pentecostal Grace, done by a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary on some of the kind of thing we were talking about this morning, the relationship, the biblical thrust, and in church history on the relationship between the Exodus and the Passion, uh, the conquest of Canaan and uh, the, uh, uh, and Pentecost, and baptism and confirmation. Very, very interesting study. So we started. The end result is that they're now, Zondervan has taken it and gone with it, and it's Interestingly enough, last year made more money for Sondland than any other academic section of their book production business. We've got 20-some titles, including Sugden's standard edition, uh, edition of the standard sermons of John Wesley, and got those back on the market in the United States. But I was interested in it. In August of 1984, Emory, Emory called, Candler called us, and said, is there any way we can get Lin- enough copies of Lindstrom for our text, for text for the, uh, course at Candler on, uh, our bicentennial course on the theology of John Wesley? And December Duke called us and in February Olive called us. So I think there were five seminaries that used it in the bicentennial year as a major, either as a text or a major collateral for the course in the bicentennial year on the theology of John Wesley. Well, uh, we, that, when we went to Zondervan with that, we then, with my son-in-law and 50 bucks and two more of us, we formed another corporation called the Francis Asbury Society. And we do things that uh, Zondervan doesn't think will pay, like the biography of uh, David Seaman's father, and the biography of J.C. McPeters and uh, some other things that are too particularistic. We did, we took the Presidential address for the president of the Council of Bishops for 1986, Ole Borgen from uh, Scandinavia. We took his presidential address, put it in tract form, and uh, have circulated it. It's really a great statement on the order of salvation from a Wesleyan perspective. Our interest is primarily theological and devotional, uh, so we're doing some things like that. I hope, sincerely hope you will read, and read carefully. Bonhoeffer. And if you find it difficult, don't be surprised. If you find it easy, then you're different from me. I found myself having to read to develop his, uh, 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 to develop a grasp of how he used language and phrases. But my, how refreshing when I got behind the text to what he was thinking. He says it is nothing but grace when we are permitted to live in community with Christian brethren. The measure is varied. Some experience it in common worship every Sunday. He said many do not have that opportunity. He said others know communion, community, only in their family. He said... I knew it and experienced it in the underground seminary that he said we had in Germany. He said, community is a case of people belonging to each other. And he says, we belong to each other only in Jesus Christ. Now, if you, if you don't understand what he's saying, you will miss something there. Because he's not talking about simply a body of believers he is saying anytime that human beings experience community, what they experience originates in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that they're Christians, because the rain comes on the just and on the unjust. But when they experience priceless, that precious experience of community, they experience it without Christ, only in Christ. Now, that, that's That's something Bonhoeffer is saying. And that gets us down to what a person is. Now, he says, one, Christians need each other because of Jesus Christ. My need for you is because of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ didn't exist, I wouldn't need you. In fact, I wouldn't exist. But my need for you is something that has its origin in Jesus Christ. Your need for me has its origin in Jesus Christ. I find that very different from the way I tend to think. And I have to stop and live with that a little while before I know what he's saying. Now, secondly, he says a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. Not only the case of the fact that no man comes to the Father except through me. That saving... He says that nobody comes to another person except through Jesus Christ, even if it isn't saving. So we're getting to the fact that Christ is a part of every person's experience, whether he ever knows it, whether he knows it or not, and whether he acknowledges it or not. The best that is in the life of the pagan or the atheist is the presence of God and the activity of God. The rain comes on the just and on the unjust. Now, that's a different way of thinking. In Jesus Christ, we have been chosen from eternity, accepted in time, and united for eternity. In Jesus Christ, we have been chosen from eternity, accepted in time, and united for eternity. Now, what you're going to find if you live with him, Jesus Christ is infinitely bigger than most of us thought he was, because we've tended to think of him as in terms of his incarnate existence and in terms of uh, uh, that time span and in terms of the future. But there is this ontological uh, existence of Christ that that is involved eternally, and is of an eternal dimension, transcending all of the temporal things. Now he says, our hope is outside ourselves. Now that takes us back to the, being a person, is to be incomplete. Our hope is outside ourselves, so that no person is ever going to be, uh, find fulfillment by building walls around himself. Until the wall comes, walls come down, No person can ever be complete. Now that goes back to the Trinity. Read those passages in John's Gospel where Jesus talks about his relationship to his Father. It is, there is the model for you and me. We are not made in the image of the Father. We are made in the image of the Son. And that those passages are reflective for us. Our hope is outside of ourselves. The word of God does not come from within. God puts it in men's mouth to communicate it to others. So the Christian needs another person to speak the word to him or to her. The Christ in our own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of a brother or a sister. The Christ in our hearts is weaker than the Christ in the in the mouth or in the word of a brother or a sister. The goal of all Christian community is to meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. Now what does that say about Christian community? Uh let me quickly see if I can suggest one or two things here in six minutes, because in six minutes we've got to clear out of here so they can set up for us to have some food. All of this kind of thinking is alien to the modern secular mind. It is alien to most Christians in our modern secular world, because most of us have imbibed in the thought form of our own culture. There are two models for a person in uh, in modern thought. One is a machine. All of the movies that you see about computers, you know, uh, as if we are a great computer, great machine. That's very helpful. We've learned a lot about ourselves. The origin of that concept really in modern thought seems to have come from physics and astronomy and was very dominant between 1500 and 1700. The second model is the animal. B.F. Skinner is the world's expert on pigeons. Pavlov worked with dogs. Most, a lot of experimental psychologists work with rats. And on the basis of that, they want to explain you and me. And the model is, is, is an organic one. That came out of the biological sciences and has dominated the modern approach for the last 200 years to what we are like. And what I'm trying to say is, there's another model. And that model is in the interrelationship of the persons of the triune Godhead. God didn't make us in the image of the animals. He made us in the image of himself. And if I want to understand you, I have to know God. And if you want to understand me, unfortunately, you need to know God too. Now, uh, I'd love to have the time to illustrate that. But let me read you a quotation from Bonhoeffer. And then I want to tell a story which Carl has heard. (laughs) Uh, Anybody who lives beneath the cross, Bonhoeffer talks about a man living, person living beneath the cross. That's where we're supposed to live. Do you live beneath the cross? And who has discerned the cross of Jesus, discerned in the cross of Jesus, the utter wickedness of all men and of his own heart will find that he, the one who lives under the cross, will find there is no sin that can ever be alien to him. Not only have all sinned, but all have sinned somewhere at some time, essentially in every way. That's part of the doctrine of original sin. Anybody who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified by even the rankest sins of a brother. I had a friend, Methodist layman. His father was a member of the Board of Trustees of Kentucky Wesleyan College. They were very active in in Kentucky Methodism. No way you can know of whom I speak, but he walked in one day and his wife was in another man's arms. Another guy, one of his friends, was kissing her. He said, Dennis, it was horrible enough to experience that, but he said what was worse was I wanted to murder him. And he said, Is murder less of a sin than infidelity? He said, in that moment, I learned something about me, and it horrified me. Never knew the potential was there before. If I could have, I would have murdered him. Looking at the cross of Jesus, he knows the human heart. There's people just like you and me that crucified him. Best educated theological people in the world. They were all ordained, led. In the, in the execution of Jesus. He knows how utterly lost it is in sin. Looking at the cross of Jesus, the person who lives under the cross knows the human heart and knows how utterly lost it is in sin and weakness. How it goes astray in the ways of sin. But he also knows that it is accepted in grace and mercy. Then he goes to build his case for confession under the cross. It is not the experience of life but experience of the cross that makes one a worthy hearer of confession. It's not your courses in seminary but it's your relationship to the cross that makes you worthy to hear the confession of another. The most Experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. Our modern counseling hasn't found that out yet. I'm not kicking counseling. I'm just saying it is inadequate and we have something We need to tell them. We have something they need, and we need to share it. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are. But it does not know the godlessness of men. And so it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Modern psychiatry has no concept of sin, which means forgiveness is impossible. And if forgiveness is essential to, to mental health, then there's a limitation on it. That's what Scott Peck has been wrestling with. Now, and so, let's see. In the presence, only the Christian knows this. Get this in it. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother... I can dare to be a sinner. Do you know that a sinner is the biggest thing in the creation? That's the greatest thing about you, that you have the capacity to sin. The rat doesn't, and the pigeon, and the dog. The man who wrote that, his father, held the first chair of psychiatry in any major university in the world. I was sitting inside of a sociology graduate student and said, as a sociologist, do you use the categories of right and wrong, good and evil, to explain society? Oh, no, he said, you can't do that. I said, why not? He said, you have to be objective and scientific. So we do not use the categories of right and wrong, true and false, good and evil. I said, then you operate as a social scientist as if there is no universal moral order. Yeah, he said, that's right. I said, why are we so blooming guilty all the time? He said, that's a tough one, isn't it? I said, you enjoy sociology? Oh yes, he said. I love it. I said, "You're going to spend your life in it?" Oh yes. I said, "Why?" He said, "There's many blooming things wrong in the world." And do you know? I didn't say a word. It was 30 seconds before he started blushing. Because you see, his model for explaining you and me didn't have any category. Didn't have the categories of right and wrong. But when he got ready to make a life decision, he wasn't about to dispose of his life without making, using the category of right and wrong, and he couldn't help it. So as he blushed, and I didn't say a word, we just sat there. He said, you trapped me. I said, no, you were trapped a long time ago. It was the sovereign God in His holiness that trapped you.